to the Cross the Line Podcast. My name is Carlos Smith, and today's episode is sponsored by KB's Cartel on 321 North Main Street in Jonesville, South Carolina. They offer hand car wash, vacuum, and clean interior. Full detail is also available. While you wait on your vehicle, customer seating is available as well as a dining area. They open Tuesday to Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., so make sure you stop by. Today's episode is also sponsored by Big Ben's Desserts. If you need to satisfy your sweet tooth, this is the cake for you, place for you. They have a wide variety of desserts, including cakes, ice cream, banana pudding, and then my personal favorite, the Oreo cheesecake. They open Tuesday to Saturday from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. and Sunday from 12 p.m. to 7 p.m. So stop by and visit Big Ben's Desserts on 297 Spartanburg Highway in Lyman, South Carolina, where nothing could be sweeter. Today we have another special episode of the Cross the Line Podcast, the Self-Investment Tour Edition. Uh, somebody that I'm happy to call a friend, a big brother, a mentor that's always taken me under his wing since I met him. Um, he is the owner of the SUV TV here in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, today I had the privilege of uh, once again sitting with Mr. Marcus Burnett. How you doing? Hey, doing great, bro. Man, I'm good, man. Thank you for ha- joining us again, man. Um, for people that haven't seen this, this is your second time coming on. I remember this was like, I think the first time we did an interview was probably about three years ago. I think so. Two, three years Maybe ago. even longer, man. Yeah, yeah, the time just been flying by. Yeah. So just to let people know, I've been knowing you since... It was like right after I graduated, maybe like a year after college. I graduated in 2014. I think Coach Cox introduced me to you in 2015. So that's seven years yeah, right bro. there. And uh, ever since then, man, you've always welcomed me, embraced me, taken you under your wing. So I really appreciate you for that. Likewise, bro. Yes, sir. So um, just kind of starting out, though. So I've been knowing you for seven years. Like how long have you actually had the SUV TV? How long have you actually been in business? Yeah, 10 years. 10 years? Yes, sir. And um, I know we were talking earlier, you are originally from Indiana, yep, correct? correct. Yep. Talk a little bit about your background and like what was it like, you know, growing up and being from Indiana. Yeah, so I was from Hammond, up in that northwest corner. Uh, you know, people always look for a landmark, so about 15 minutes from Gary, East Chicago. Uh, Chicago was 30 minutes away. Uh, growing up there, I loved it because you got to live on the Indiana side, uh, but you got to leverage what Chicago had to offer. Right. Um, not in the way to where we on Chicago's coattails. You know, my wife always <laughs> jokes with me about that. Our Hammond people always mention Chicago, but it's not a, you know, we take pride in being from Hammond, but, you know, it means something when you can be 30 minutes away from Wrigley Field, 30 minutes away from where, you know, where MJ and the Bulls created yeah. that last dance legacy. So it was dope growing up in that area because, you know, you were on the Indiana side, you got to experience Indiana and some of what comes from being from there. But then you still had a big city that you could leverage, um, you know, when it came to everything from pro events to, you know, shopping, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So. so growing up, did you uh, come from a, because you're an entrepreneur now, did you come from a family of entrepreneurs or were your parents like the traditional, like working nine to five? Yeah. So I would say my, my parents worked, my mom worked the traditional nine to five. Uh, my dad was a lawyer. Uh, but he was always entrepreneurial. So aside from his legal practice, there was always, you know, different businesses and concepts and ideas. And, you know, even my mom was entrepreneurial. You know, she did some catering and, and had different things. So I would say that entrepreneurial spirit, it was a big part of the household I grew up in. It was always a, a push to innovate, a push to kind of question status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, it was just kind of built in us. Mm-hmm. What kind of things were, were they kind of, like, fascinated you or what did you gravitate towards growing up? Of course, definitely sports, but, like, what was, was there anything else that you kind of, like, were interested in growing it's just up? It's like a mixture of everything, you know. Like, I love sports. I was always, you know, a good athlete, good enough to play multiple sports, never mm-hmm. great in any of them. Played, you know, baseball, basketball, tennis. 
Um, but I always had interest in things like robotics um, and things like debate. You know, you talk about being from Hammond. I got to shout out Hammond. We won the national championship in robotics like four times. Mm. Um, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, that's a nerd accomplishment, one I'm proud <laughs> of. You know what I'm saying? We, you know, we, got, we had one of the best robotics teams out there. Uh, I did speech and debate, mock trial. So it was always just kind of being competitive in sports, but then even, you know, non even academic stuff or non-athletic stuff. So I just, you know, I would say just a, um, a diversity of interest and just trying to be the best at any of them. Did you have any siblings or were you the, the only child? Yep. So I did. Have, I had uh, two younger sisters. Okay. And what was like, uh, What did they lean towards entrepreneurship or were they kind of like traditional out of father, you know, being in that household? And what what kind of advice did you did they lean towards for you, from you? Well, I would say, you know, I was able to give them advice, but they're they're both very distinct in terms of the paths that they went into. Um, like mm-hmm. one is in the cosmetology; she does a Got great it. job, so she's kind of taking her personal interest um, and kind of put it towards that area. And then my other sister, she's in real estate. Um, you know, still does some corporate stuff as well, but she's growing her real okay. estate uh, empire right now. So, you know, they kind of spawn from that entrepreneurial mindset too. Um, we just all had different paths in terms of you know timing and when we go about it. All right, so leaning towards, like, graduation, did you know what you wanted to, to be then, and, like, what school did you attend? Yep, so I attended Washington University in St. Louis. Um, you know, growing up, I went between wanting to be an architect to wanting to be a lawyer to not really being sure going into college. The architect and the lawyer, they sounded good when I was in middle school, but architect, I had to realize I was more than using a protractor to draw floor plans. Uh, mm-hmm. Being a lawyer... Didn't really feel like studying a bunch of statutes and law books for, for several years. I like more of the representation in court um, and stuff that I saw stuff I saw my dad do in court. But, you know, I didn't see him in law school. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't interested in law. So when I went to Washington University in St. Louis, marketing ended up growing on me. And to be honest, I knew I wanted to do marketing when I did an internship uh, for a black-owned ad agency named Fuse Advertising, uh, okay. led by Clifford Franklin, uh, his wife. Um, there was a fraternity brother of mine that recommended me get the internship, and that was when I knew I wanted to do marketing. So mm-hmm. it was going to school at WashU, uh, but then that internship that let me know what I wanted to do out of college. So graduating from leaving college, what kind of jobs did you have to like take on early on? Because I'm always fascinated to see you know what entrepreneurs have now, but like the path of what they went through to get to where they are. You know, a lot of times you may have to work certain jobs that you don't really like or that's not for you, but you do it just to get the experience and help you catapult you to the next level. Like, what were some of those jobs that you had, um, like, after college? And I could say it was a blessing because I started interning at Fuse Advertising the last semester of my senior year, and I was able to hit the ground running right into that job, you know, once I graduated. So it was really a blessing because... It's hard to go right into marketing jobs right out of college. A lot of times they try to pigeonhole you into sales jobs that aren't really marketing, but that's where you kind of got to start off at. To be able to have meaningful projects and a workload that they gave me right out of college at Fuse, I mean, it was huge. Um, not, not just that, being able to learn you know, directly under Clifford Franklin, who was you know, really a, a, a tone setter when you look at advertising, you know, not just multicultural, but general marketing as well. So I was blessed to have that kind of position right out of college. What would you say is like the biggest difference between, you know, talking about, you know, getting a position in marketing instead of sales? Like, what would you say is like the biggest difference between those those two? You get some room for creativity in sales, but for the most part, your creativity is going to be how you go about doing certain staples that are a part of sales. So, you know, 
uh, how you target your list or you know how you take people to lunch or different tactics you might have some room in my opinion the creativity and marketing there's a lot more room for your creativity there's a lot more room for campaigns there's a lot more room for you know doing research and pulling in the data and then being able to say hey i don't have to sell 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 because let's be honest a lot of sales is you know the law of averages the, the heavy volume you know mm-hmm. that type of approach not to say that that's all there is but that was more that marketing is a little bit more i feel like there's more of an art to marketing um you know still some science there but more of an art mm-hmm. versus sales i feel like it's more of the science of averages numbers high volume and then you expect this amount to come through from the uh learning under you said clifford franken mm-hmm. yeah what was some of the best advice um that he gave you that helped you like moving forward in your career i say with cliff he gave me most of his advice through example um that was one of those to where as a business owner now 10 years in there's things i appreciate from cliff now that i couldn't appreciate as much when i was just a a young guy coming out of college ready to take on the world Mm -hmm. certain things that you know I liken it to, you know, Mr. Miyagi kind of having Daniel's son waxing on and waxing off. And he's yeah. ready to learn the karate. Well, you don't understand. I'm already teaching you karate. You know, right. I'm already teaching you things to apply. So with them, they were not only giving me, you know, great meaningful work, but, you know, I saw how hard he worked. You know, I saw mm-hmm. him one of the first ones in, last ones to leave. And I just saw him kind of how he just embraced the process of being the best at what he does. You know, nobody was thinking like him. Nobody was working as hard as him. The way he empowered, um, you know, uh, account executives like myself coming behind him. Not just that, him being a fraternity brother, you know, you appreciate mm-hmm. different things that people contribute to their fraternities. But when you can provide meaningful jobs, opportunities, and then be able to invest in the people behind it, that's yeah. tenfold, man. So a lot of what I learned from Cliff was just him watching him. Yeah, he gave me some nuggets directly, but a lot of it was just leadership by example. And I appreciate a lot of that more in hindsight. Right. Do you... Do you feel like it helped greatly benefit you as well because he's somebody that another coming from another black man? Not saying that other races don't give us um, great advice or help us with our careers, but when it's somebody that looks like us that knows what it's like to be a black man and you know building something, and he's giving you this type of advice, do you feel like that kind of also helped me greatly benefit you in the long run? It did, man. Um, you know, perspective is great, and when you look at certain common ground. It's not a slight to anyone else. The common ground is the common ground. So, yes, you know, being able to work for, you know, uh, a black business owner, but aside from that, somebody in the advertising and marketing space, not just that. You know, he ran the company. The, the principal founders of his company were his wife, uh, Sherilyn Franklin, and his brother, Mike Franklin. Mm-hmm. You know, I own my company with my wife, you know. So it was being able to see what they were able to do. That nucleus, that core, had a great team of people working with and around them. But it was essentially that core, and I loved how, you know, sometimes when you talk husband and wife, there can be this mom and pop stigma that you have to work through. Yeah. And no, that's just a tight, cohesive nucleus. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't pigeonhole it as mom and pop because they were literally doing, you know, millions and billings and one of the most, you know, widely recognized ad agencies in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was even before I knew what I was being prepared for, I was being prepared for it just from working under them, following them, and understanding that perspective. So after that job, you ended up transit. Before, you, you took one other job before starting your own company. So I took two, uh, I took three other jobs. So um, once I left Fuse, I took a job in Chicago, um, a marketing coordinator job. It was a group that had never had a true marketing campaign behind it. They just had stuff that they sold, uh, but it was a chance to really kind of come in and support that marketing department, build it from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, that was an interesting job because at the time I wanted a different challenge. I actually took around a, a 10K pay cut to take that job. Um, but it was worth it because I felt like it was an opportunity to really build something from the ground up. Um, and then from a perspective standpoint, I also didn't realize how good I had it at Fuse. I wanted a different challenge, but I still feel like you got to take control of your career right. and just be real with different things. So I can be real enough to say, you know what, at Fuse, I, I underappreciated what they were, you know, the opportunities they were giving me. At the same time, that next challenge, it really helped mold and prepare me. So I, I took that marketing coordinator role in Chicago. Then I moved to Atlanta, uh, did a combination of freelance work and also working for Cisco. Um, the technology company. After Cisco, I worked at IHI, regional manager there, for about four years, and then that was my last stop before starting SUV. Mm -hmm. How important was is it, you know, as far as careers? Because I, I I talk about this a lot, and it's like it seems like a lot of entrepreneurs on their journey they're from one place, but it's almost like you have to be willing to you know travel and relocate. Like, how important is it? Do you think it is to kind of like relocate as far as like building your career? Or is it necessary? I think you got to size up your situation, size up the market that you're in. Um, you know, I like St. Louis as, as an area in terms of my hometown. I felt like for my hometown, I've always envisioned going and being able to build um, a, a, an amount of capital that allows me to come back and invest in the area I'm from. So for me, sizing up where I was from, my career path, and then what I saw in Atlanta, it made sense for me. Um, you know, I got... You know, one of my closest colleagues is a guy named Barry Tyler. He's one of my frat brothers. You know, he graduated about a year or two after me in high school. He stayed in Hammond and has been a tremendous resource for the city. So his path is a little bit different, even though he, he travels a lot to be able to get better at his craft and to bring stuff back. He's got a different role, but at the end of the day, our paths are, are merging together because mm -hmm. the same capital and, and experiences that I'm trying to build outside of the area I can come in and work with somebody that's really stayed and grown roots in that community throughout his professional career. So all of our paths are different. You got to size up what's best for the chess game you're playing. Mm -hmm. And that, that we were talking about that earlier. You know, that's that's been one of my biggest battles right now. Is I love home, man, but it's like sometimes I feel like you know, in order to grow even more, I feel like I need to leave home. But I always said I want to stay home and build something for the people, something that, that's going to um, benefit people in the long run. But at the same time, it's like, am I really holding myself back, you know, yeah. staying home? Yeah. So I feel like that's one of the biggest battles is, you know, trying to balance it. Is it time? When is it time to leave? And when is do you need to stay there for your people, you know, to help them out in the long run? Yeah. And there's times where your physical presence might be home, but when you sometimes go away, and, you know, you set an example. You never know how many kids or other business owners or people you're inspiring. So you might not be in that market, but your presence is still there, you know. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a balancing act. Yeah, I have people now, like are we saying, we a lot of the stuff that we do now, we're, we're not home a lot. Most of the time, was like, busy being on the road. But I was still, like, one of my goals is to always, I, I want to have a studio called Across the Line Studio. Uh, I want to build it at home. But at times, I feel like, do I need to, you know, leave? build it somewhere else and, and bring it back home it's just trying to find that that balance of like what's the next key i, I feel like it's never going to be a perfect time to do anything but it's like just just trying to like balance that's one of my biggest struggles though just just the home thing you know i have a great support system but you know it's like I, everything always works out in the long run but i'm like i I don't know if I really, is it time for me to just finally leave you know to build something else long term um so when you were at AHA, 
I know you, you were there, and I think that was the last job before you started your company. Can you talk a little bit about those lasting days at AHA and, like, how you knew, like, the writing was potentially on the wall for you to kind of, like, do your own thing? Yeah, well, the, the good thing about AHA is that it allowed me to be, it allowed me to kind of help initiate a startup without having my own startup. They were, you know, Lexington, Kentucky based, and I was responsible for, you know, the, the southeast region, specifically the Atlanta area. And so with them being new, you literally had to build everything from the ground up, all of your initial contacts. Uh, streaming was relatively new at the time. So it really required kind of putting your personal brand into it because streaming was new, the company was new. People were kind of investing in, in you and mm -hmm. your ability to kind of come through um, with that. So I, I was great in that regard. You know, worked with it for four years and a business lesson I learned is that as companies progress, their business model may progress. So once we built them to the point where they got a $12.5 million investment from Cox Media Group, they decided to make the shift to more of being driven by the technology versus the, you know, the in-person experience or the regional manager um, experience that you get from people like myself and those with, that were positioned around the country. Um, so I saw the writing on the wall. The investment came and they laid off every regional manager but me. And I want to say Thanksgiving. I want to say that was Thanksgiving of 2012. They laid mm. off every regional manager but me. I had my business plan done by Christmas of that same year because I knew my time was coming. Right. Um, you know, so by the time they laid me off in June of 2013, I was just ready to go into, you know, doing it for myself because AHI gave me a great perspective. But aside from that, I saw like a group of needs in the, in the ecosystem that I felt like weren't being met. And so the goal was to create SUV to address those needs in a way that the past four years had kind of taught me. What do you think made them hang on to you last before letting go? Um, like they let it go everybody else. What do you think it was with you that let them hang on to you for, even though the right one's on the wall, mm -hmm. why do you think they hung on to you so long as far as to start letting you go with everybody else? I think it, I think it was strategic. Um, I think in Atlanta, you know, Cox Media Group was based in Atlanta. Um, the company's biggest competitor was based in Atlanta. So I think it was one of those things to where let's make sure there's a little bit of training wheels on this next transition mm -hmm. um, prior to, you know, if we do that prematurely, then I don't, I don't think it's the best message to the group that just invested in us. Um, you know, so I think there was a little bit of a training wheels element to where we'll kind of leave, leave them on for a certain amount of time. Um, so I think that that was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when I look back at it, you know, I can understand their rationale and kind of trimming the overhead from the regional manager position. Um, but I think everybody was figuring the streaming landscape out at that time. So, you know, I get their rationale, but yeah, I think they left me on longer from a strategic timing mm -hmm. standpoint. Should we, as people in general, you may love what you do, but should we always, you know, work on, I guess, per se, like having like a backup plan or a business plan of our own? Yes, we, we're thankful for the jobs that we have, but anything can happen. You never know. One day you could be work, working there, and then the next day the company shut down or they let people go. Do you think it's a good idea for people to, you know, invest in their own futures and uh, create their own opportunities outside of, you know, having their own jobs, which they, if, even if they do love it? Definitely. I think you have to have pivot points. And I think sometimes people think it's starting your own large business or conglomerate or bust when there's a lot of different levels and variations. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So you might work for a company, but you might have a backup plan just in case you have to pivot and generate additional revenue streams or in case a pandemic hits and everything is, is, is kind of shaking on its head. You know, so mm -hmm. I think the pandemic taught everybody 
you got to be able to have some pivot points, adjustments you can make, and like just different ways of doing things. Not to say it's totally eliminated, but I think the years of working 15, 20, 30 years for companies and just retiring, I think that's a thing of the past. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think you know anybody that's doing that, I think that's an exception to the rule. So I think everybody has to think of different pivot points and, again, sizing up your path and what you want to do because it might not be starting a full-fledged business. It might be more consulting and freelance mm-hmm. that allows you to generate that revenue without maybe assuming full business overhead. So I just... I just encourage everybody to keep the wheels turning and think outside of the box. And there's, it's always better to overdo it on planning and pivoting beforehand versus having to move double time right. because you wait until the last minute. Absolutely. So when the time came and they let you go, talk a little bit about those early days of SUV TV and how did you actually come up with the name? So it was a, uh, the name generated from the sports utility vehicle. Mm-hmm. My rationale was... You know, when you think SUVs, some people get them because they want the space to tow stuff. Some people want cargo. Some people want to transport kids. Some people just like to look. I wanted mm-hmm. to create a business that had a similar niche in the sports space. Some use us to broadcast. Some use us to leverage um, my sports marketing expertise. Um, some use it just for special projects that you might not be able to put in a box, but they're related to sports and the ecosystem. So SUV was kind of like that general concept that encompassed it all. There was enough specialty to be able to, you know, uh, leverage the expertise, but enough fluidity to where, yeah, we're not just pigeonholed in the, yeah, we just produce events or we just do marketing. No, we do it all because I think the fusion is what makes the business and the ecosystem thrive. Was it hard to to get things going early on or did you just take those contacts that you have from AHA to help you translate, trans, transition your business? Was it easy in those early days or was it still kind of hard, you know? It, it was a it was a process. The only thing I say made it relatively easier is that you know, being younger and being at that age, um, and being able to kind of see streaming grow, I just really enjoy seeing the streaming industry grow, and it was fun being a part of that. So even though there was some you know early growing pains, and there was a transition when you're going from, you know, being paid a salary in that company to now you have to start from the ground up. You have to generate revenue streams because at the time, you know all streaming was pretty much free in terms of the high school grassroots space. Most people were using free platforms to stream. And there were a couple platforms that were charging, but it was so relatively new, even they weren't hitting critical mass. So there was a transition in going from people expecting free streaming to now you have to build in enough of a value proposition to be able to charge money, but not do it at the detriment of your relationships. Mm -hmm. You just jump from what it was to, okay, now there's a charge for it, got to be able to factor in some transition and some build-up so mm-hmm. being able to navigate that was a you know was a challenge early on yeah so in the beginning you was you say you basically you were saying like some of those events you had to do for free to kind of like show people like this is the work that you can do and put out yep. before you can start inputting those fees and everything that's so the way i saw it i had to do that one there's a proof of concept you do have to kind of show people um you know what they're getting but aside from that my competitors were larger and more venture capital back to where they could be a little bit more focused on the bottom line than I could be. Um, you might look at it the other way around. You might say, well, if you were smaller, it seemed like revenue would mean more to you. Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, because for me, the importance of brand, uh, but also running the marathon versus the sprint, it makes a big difference. You know, Part of why we've been able to last, grow, and scale over the past several years was times where we did stuff that the balance sheet might not have supported. You know, if you were mm-hmm. just looking at the bottom line, but brand is a is a very powerful thing. 
And that mm-hmm. was something that we were able to build. So even if you look back and you say, okay, hey, we may have overspent there. Maybe we overdid there, um, you know, without charging the revenue. It's all the balance in that, you know. It's not a two, three, four-year race. Over 10 years, we've been able to make adjustments, but I think the way we hit the ground running in our early years, it made a big difference. So do you, also, it seems like they can kind of, in a sense, work to your advantage as well, like you said, not having the, the backing of, like, those bigger companies like they have. You, like, they can kind of rest on their laurels knowing that they got money coming in. So for you, it's like, you know, you you betting on yourself. Do you feel like they work to your advantage as well, knowing that you had to make everything count when you were just going out here um, putting in the work? Definitely. I think, um, you know, you have to have the perfect balance of knowing when to study business, study best practices, and not just be so, uh, you know, strong-headed that, that you're not balanced. But you got to know there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it factor and a lot of just refusing to be denied that, that is there in entrepreneurship. And I don't care whether you're talking um, – you know, the Byron Allens of the world, the Steve Jobs, the McDonald's brothers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, there were certain things to where they just had a system and they stuck to it. Um, you know, and I think that that's a big part of, you know, entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Having that perfect balance of knowing you don't know it all, but what you know, lock in on that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we like to talk about, you know, when you're building a business or some, or anything like that, you, you want that support. Like as far as family and friends, a lot of times people from your area might not support it as much as you would like them to. How did you feel like when you started your business? Did you feel like you had the support of um, people back home? I feel like it was la- there were different layers of support. I feel like my family supported me early on because they're always going to support me. Mm-hmm. Did they necessarily understand the vision? Maybe, maybe not. Um, right. But that's not a derogatory thing because I was so focused on I'm not trying to lay out where I'm trying to go. I'm just trying to go there. You know, you'll mm-hmm. see over time. But my family is a very supportive family. You know, we mentioned the entrepreneurial, um, you know, spirit of my the household I grew up in. Aside from that, my grandparents were entrepreneurs. You know, owned a family store, you know, owned apartments, did different things. So, you know, entrepreneurship and things like that is kind of like an expectation. So when I choose chose to go my own path, they supported me. As far as the layers of support from your community, you got to know when to appreciate support, but don't expect it or be fueled by it mm-hmm. because there's a there's there's different factors. Some people want to support it, but they got to face their own thing in terms of them not being able to take a step and, and take the risk that you take. So when you do it and you succeed at it, that applause might not be as, as high as it should because they got to face some of their own things. Right. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And you're mm-hmm. not doing it to rub anything in their face. But you got to know that sometimes your the applause won't match the merit of what you're doing, and that's okay. Right. Because you're not doing it for that anyway. So I feel like any entrepreneur, you're going to hit that time where it's like, man, I hit that milestone. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. It don't seem like some of the support is matching what I'm doing. Right. And you notice it even if you're not driven by that. So just know that's what it is. And really, if you got the right mindset, that becomes fuel too. Absolutely. Do you feel like you could have could have built something like this to sustain in your hometown or was it just necessary for you to come to Atlanta and build it? I think it was necessary. I think the Atlanta market, the, the Atlanta market is the only market that could pull me from the Midwest. Um, you know, mm-hmm. growing up in Indiana, being close to Chicago, going to college in St. Louis, Atlanta is what really grew me because I look at, it, it really, uh, you know, drew me because when I look at the amount of corporate headquarters here, I looked at the amount of independent projects and just the entrepreneurial vibe. Uh, you look at the sports 
that are here. Mm-hmm. Everything from pro down to the high school and grassroots level and the talent. You look at its proximity to Charlotte, Orlando, uh, Nashville. You know, so Atlanta, I feel like, was very strategic. There's a purpose down here. Um, you know, I met my wife down here. So, you know, I don't think that my life would be the same if it wasn't for Atlanta. All the way around to, you know, how Atlanta, I feel like how they influenced some of the election decisions over the past few years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there's just a purpose in Atlanta that I don't think would have been back home. And I appreciate home for the roots. But Atlanta gave me wings that are going to allow me to go back home with a much different, um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, I like his quote, you know, uh, walk softly and carry a big stick. I'm going to go back home with a much bigger stick um, thanks to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I think that makes a big difference. And there's a lot of purpose in Atlanta. What is it like now when you go back home? Do they still look look at you just as Marcus is from here or do you look at you as, as like Marcus? He's built this big successful brand like how do they look at you when you go back home or and do they yeah. expect like any any kind of like handouts or anything when you go back home well i think it's just i think it's just all love genuine love when, when we see people and i think there's enough balance to recognize people accomplishments but if they're the right people you still just see them as markets mm-hmm. um you know i still just see them as you know very tiredly who i say is doing great things yeah He's gonna be a mayor of Hammond one day. Um, you know, he's doing the, these 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 various things at different levels, but he's still buried. You know, so I think mm-hmm. there's a balance of recognizing your people's accomplishments and being happy for them. And you know, that's what I love about social. We talked about the gift and the curse. You know, there are there are guys that you know, the extent of me growing up with them was us playing little league against each other, and, and you know what I'm saying, and them getting me for some losses that I still want to avenge to this day if I ever see them <laughs> on a diamond. But that, but getting messages from those type of guys is like, man, I see what you're doing. Keep doing it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like to where there's a balance in being proud of your accomplishments, accomplishments and being driven, but not getting a big head like, you know, you know, drinking your own Kool-Aid. You know, at the end of the day, we all came from the same city. And so you appreciate the genuine love, but it's always an element of, you know, I'm still Marcus Burnett, you know, grew up on Eat Street. Absolutely. Is it hard for you, you know, building a business not to be, so hands-on with everything because of course it's your brand it's your name you got to put your stamp on it is it hard for you to not be so hands-on and like oversee everything it's extremely hard yeah because it's that balance of scale and being smart and then you know standing behind your brand and wanting things to be a certain way mm-hmm. um you know you hear me leverage the mcdonald's brothers a lot you know part of why ray Kroc was able to kind of steal their company Man. from them is because they didn't balance enough of okay we've done it this way but now there's a, a sea of scale out there we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater to say okay how can we be a little bit more aggressive how can we mm-hmm. maybe create a model that focuses less on these these hand-driven details that we've done so i try to find that balance of you know being true to the brand because you know Chick-fil-A, one of the strongest brands out there. Right. If we say we're closed on Sunday, we're closed, we're closed. on Sunday. You know what right. I mean? People have probably told them, hey, here are the margins you're missing out on. You can be doing this. Yeah, sounds good, bro. We're closed on Sunday. Yep. You know, so I think it's that balance of um, knowing when to stick to your guns and knowing when to say, hey, as, as, we, as we work, we work smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the fun of it, man. Right. And talk a little bit about that. When do you – have you had moments where you – looked at it from a financial standpoint, like this may be a good idea, but you just had to like turn it down. Have you had those moments where you just had to, maybe it wasn't a good move at the time where you had to just turn certain business deals down? Definitely, because I think there's a combination of when you're a black business owner, you always have to weigh 
what looks good in terms of a sum that's relative and what looks good over the bigger span of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I listen to Nipsey Hussle's music some, but when he was you know kind of taken away from us, man, I really started I digging into him, like man. Nipsey's approach. Like I was asleep. You know, I knew some of his tracks, but I had no idea his impact as an entrepreneur, a businessman, an icon, and just... He was like, I, I, I'm not. I don't look at myself as a rapper. I started treating myself like a brand. You know, mm-hmm. he, you know, he, he talked about like some of the best brands. They've got kind of like a brand guidebook that, you know. So the way I see it, I'm not going to look at revenue and look at certain things as just a streaming company. Mm-hmm. You know, SUVTV is a brand, so I got to treat it as such. So a deal that might make sense for you because you're just looking at those numbers. I'm good. You know, Nipsey could have sold. You know, way more revenue. No, I'm gonna get what he did. A uh, a uh, hundred copies at a thousand a piece. A thousand was it a thousand at a hundred? I think he was selling them for a hundred, something like I that. I think it was a hundred copies. I think a thousand, thousand piece. piece something I like, think yeah. so. But it was, you know, he could have definitely done more units and did more volume and sales. But he was on a totally different brand footprint, so he wasn't looking at just the quantity there. I think quality over time it ends up to more quantity than just taking those deals mm-hmm. that just look good because of the sticker price. So I think. You gotta always weigh each case by case scenario, but you know, don't go for the for the checkers over the chest. Do you think that's what hurts a lot of black owned business? Like we may look at that figure and just bite on it as opposed to understanding like the long term effects of it. Do you think that's how a lot of black owned businesses end up at times being taken advantage of because we're just focusing on that dollar sign? Yeah, I think some do fall into that category and I think the good thing about today, and it's kind of like a bad thing about today, too. The good thing is, in life, you're going to always be given the total book of work or the total time to see how a game plays out. So if a four-quarter game, you're going to be able to play the four quarters out and see what happened. Mm-hmm. But in today's society, if you don't didn't call that time out or you missed that shot in the first quarter that the peanut gallery thought you should have made, by the time the second quarter hit, they're saying the coach need to lose his job. This is what you need to be doing. He's a bum, this mm-hmm. and that. Well, meanwhile, the vets, they already know we're going to see the data. We're going to see what's going on. And by the time the fourth quarter ends, we're going to win the game. So I think there are some business owners that take the, you know, take the duck deal, not realizing that, hey, that might be, you know, I might be cutting my nose off to spite my face. Or that's not better in the long run. Mm-hmm. Some fall into that category. And then there are some that take a deal that you from the outside might say is a bad deal. But they're already sizing up factors and determinants that you're not even aware of. And they're okay with you talking trash in quarter one because mm-hmm. they already know it's pros. That's what the crowd's going to do. Fourth quarter, we're going to be the one hosting course in the trophy. So I think, again, it's that you always hear me say it's case-specific. Some take deals that they shouldn't take because they don't know their worth or they don't play chess. And some, you got to kind of stand on your own thing because the crowd going to always give their, give their hot takes. So All you, the time. So, so you got to kind of be committed to knowing, hey, I'm the only one in this. Me and my team, I'm going to do what's best for my team. And a lot of times I think a lot of black-owned businesses can't get the funding they need to sustain as well. So they yeah. feel like they, you know, in order to, you know, provide for themselves and for the people on their staff, like they have to take this money knowing it may not be the best thing for them. And, and when you're talking about your work, at what point in business did you finally feel like, okay, I know my work, like this is not the right deal for me. Like what point did you feel like, okay, this brand is built to sustain and like you actually like knew like the value of like the SUV TV. I mean, it might sound cliche, man, but I knew it from day one. And mm-hmm. I think because of, you know, the I high years were very instrumental, but I think in playing the role that I did to help build that company, which was a great company founded by some great people. Um, 
and I was able to learn under, you know, I, I learned under Cliff Franklin, but I was also able to learn under Jim Host, who was chairman of IHI, but aside from that, Jim Host shaped the NCAA Final Four, the, you know, the big Pizza Hut promotion, you know, with the little basketball, and like, he was just a, tra a trailblazer when it comes to that space, being able to learn under guys like that. I saw enough in the 10, 15 years leading up to when we started the company and knew enough about the road ahead to where I, I, I knew we, we were valuable. I knew mm -hmm. nobody would be able to align certain things the way we were. And it's not to pat our own back, but it's just because of the knowledge. I was blessed to be able to learn under mm -hmm. some great leaders and then being able to cut my teeth with work that I had done. So I knew we would have staying power because certain things, you can throw millions at it. You're still not going to be able to do it like certain individuals that have a certain intelligence but aside from that a commitment to refusing to be outworked or outlasted absolutely did you know back then um just talk about like about your mindset back then was it more about hey i'm just going to take these these jobs to you know get a certain level of position and, and and build my wealth at this time or did you already know like these opportunities that i'm having now are going to like are going to benefit me in the long run to do what I want to do. Like, what was your mindset back then? Was it more about just making a living to sustain and, and get a higher position? Or was it always like, I'm going to take this, but I know it's going to benefit me in the long run to build my own business? It was, it, I never really thought about building my, even growing up in an entrepreneurial household, it was always like, it, it's kind of like I took an entrepreneurial approach to the jobs that I worked, to where I wasn't really a nine to fiver. I might be in at 7.30, and I might be out by 3.30 because it's less about what my day looks like because sometimes I might stay there all day. I just wanted to be the best I could be aside from that. I want whatever company I'm a part of, I want I want them to be better off than before I started. You know, mm -hmm. I mentioned that job where I went from Fuse to that job in Chicago. I took the pay cut because for me, I really just love the opportunity to kind of join and do something that they hadn't done before. So I love the challenge. You know, mm -hmm. and this is before I was thinking, okay, this is going to be valuable towards when I started my own. Oh, it was just kind of like, I got this job, I'm going to knock it out of the park to a point where before I moved to Atlanta, in less than a year, I earned a raise that was going to allow me to make more than my first job and then some. Hmm. But by that time, I'd already generated enough business in Atlanta and I just felt a call into Atlanta. So I left the raise on the table to make that move. When you think about it, if I was just thinking my own business, I probably would have stayed up there in Chicago, been able to make the extra money, and then be able to put a little nest egg aside to be able to start my business. But I wasn't even thinking my own business then. Right. I was just taking on these positions with the goal of, by the time I hang my jersey up at this company, I want them to feel like, man, this, this, and this was done. There was a presence there. Right. There was an impact there. When you talk about, you know, taking that pay cut, it made me, I spoke about this before, it made me think about the time when graduated from college and, I took a job at a radio station, and uh, it was driving from my house to Greenville. It was like an hour away, and they only paid me $10 an hour. But I knew I was like, man, I knew I was worth more than just this $10 an hour, but I took it because I wanted that experience and just trying to get a foot in the door. And then when I look back on that, it's like I, I took that, what I learned from them, like editing audio, I took it and turned it into what I'm doing now. Because before then, I didn't know what to do. I was just, you know, just talking and just everything that I would do, I would just record and just put it out, no editing or anything. But the radio station, um, it taught me a lot about, you know, editing audio, running like a full production show. So I used that experience to help me transition, but at the time, it's just like, man, I needed the money. I, I needed money to help me, like, sustain and pay for student loans and everything like that. But long term, when you think long term, 
It's like, man, it really was worth it, you know, to to do what I was doing at the time. But at the time, it's hard because I think we can get caught up in, you know, the potential of, like, living right now and trying to work and pay bills instead of thinking, like, long-term, like, how is this opportunity going to benefit us in the long run? Facts, bro. And then I think God has a big impact, too. I'm not really a very religious person. I'm Mm -hmm. a spiritual person. I know God's impact, though. He'll have you in situations and doing things to where even if you're not seeing how the chess pieces are playing, like, you know, you had a good understanding. I think you were kind of saying, hey, I'm going to leverage this, um, even though it's not as much, you know, the pay isn't what I want, but I'm going to leverage this. So you were already kind of thinking that. He had me in certain positions where I wasn't even already connecting the dots, but he was already kind of connecting them for me. And I Mm -hmm. think there's always a little bit of that in there. Really, there's always a lot of that in there, too. Um, So I think, you know, you can't underestimate the, the power of that, man. Absolutely. I want to go back a couple of years and we'll talk about 2020 when the when the pandemic hit. How did that affect your business? Because you, you do a lot of sports coverage. So at the time, everything was shut down. So like, how did that time affect you and your business? Man, there was some there was some times because it was like, you know, everybody was kind of touching base and kind of saying, hey, you guys going to be OK. And I was like, yeah, we're going to be OK. But at the same time, I knew it was going to be a. You know, I liken it to a guy that takes a big hit. He might go down to his knee and he say, yeah, I'm good. But, yeah, I kind of need this knee. Like, give me a second to get my win back. Right. You know, it was that kind of thing when you look at all sports just completely shut down. You know, so um, that was a, a challenge. But it was kind of one of those things with it being such a severe scenario. Yeah, you were worried about your business, but you were, you were worried about the country. You know what I'm right. saying? And really, my thoughts kind of went to people to where... I knew our business would be fine. I'm kind of worried about those who are in different, are in tougher situations, you mm-hmm. know? So I kind of felt it firsthand. All right, there's going to be some adjustments. This is three, four, whoever knows how many months of, of contracts and business and, uh, and events that we won't be able to do. But I knew we would be fine because really the way I saw it, A, there's, there's uh, more grave concerns right now with lives being affected. But secondly, once sports do come back, the value of the stream can go way up it's gonna go way up mm-hmm. um you know so it's one of those things to where yeah it was still a challenge and you just go you know you know one of my best friends you know he lost his father like you know within the first couple of weeks so it was one of those things where i knew the business would be fine but it was just it was just the lives impacted man and just like man what is going on you know never right. seeing something like that before yeah it was like everything shut down like we we were still working because they deemed us as, at our job as essential workers. Mm-hmm. So we still work. But as far as the podcast, we really, traveling-wise, we did we did a few here and there, but not a whole lot because people were just still unsure of, like, what's, what's going on? What is this? But um, but like you said, when, when people were finally ready to get back out and do things like that, everything just, like, it went back up. Where were you at the time, though? Cause I want to ask you about as far as like the George Floyd situation and you know as far as the protesting and everything, were you for and when when you saw the players protesting and uh, and debating whether they wanted to come back and play, you knew that was going to have a, a large effect on all sports overall. Where were you at that point about as far as like the protesting what guys wanted to play and not want to play because of course this is how you you build your brain you know you, you cover sports so were you like amongst in line with the players as far as like not playing because of the George Floyd situation or were you kind of like in that situ- space where like you were kind of wanting them to get back so everything can kind of get back to normal? I guess I I respected both sides. I respected the players that say, hey, I'm going to use my voice to not play. I respect the players that say, hey, I'm going to play 
because I feel like I help the cause better by playing, be it collecting my check that allows me to support my family and the other businesses and people that I'm supporting, or be it, hey, if people are going to be all tuned in on us, then that becomes a bigger platform to kind of, you know, say our messages and, and make our stance that way. Mm-hmm. So I respected both sides. I guess for me, I'm a big, I look at how people respond in the, in the times right after something, but I'm more of a, I would rather see how you respond five, six, five, six months from then right. on, on an ongoing basis. Because I think one thing the George Floyd scenario showed us is some of the res- the responses were justified. That was appalling. It's like crazy. There, there had to yeah. be a reaction. But I think we've also seen some statements, and let's call it what it is. We've seen a lot of cap that took place right after that, mm-hmm. where the efforts aren't sustained after that. Right. Where we, we saw some people leverage responses to that to get woke points, mm-hmm. and then we didn't see the stuff. And then it just goes back to normal again. Exactly, it just goes right back to normal. Even major corporations were yep. doing the yep. same Most thing. Most definitely. So it's one of those things where I, res, you know, I respect how people chose to handle it around that time, but again, I'm not looking to judge, but I just, I'm not moved by... You know, social media responses to stuff. Right. And, you know, I'm not discounting them. I'm not against them. Nothing like that. But, you know, there's this false stigma that if it if it's not said on social, it's not happening. When really, some of the biggest doers are people that you don't see doing anything on social. You know, I don't know Ward Dunn, but it seems like every time I look up or just you know the history of what I've seen from Ward Dunn, he's building houses, something in the community, he's impacting yeah. families, doing something in the community. He probably doesn't even have a social media account. You know, he's probably got people that try to set up, probably ran away from it. So, mm-hmm. you know, well done is better than well said, right. you know. And I feel like this, the easy thing for do is these uh, coaches or these major corporations to just put out a, a, a easy statement and just that's it. Like, it's like showing that you care, but it's really more to it than just, you know, putting out these type of statements. Because like you said, when they, they put these statements out and then four or five months down the line, the same thing's happening again and everything is just like back to normal. That's the easiest thing. I think, you know, being more active in the community and making these statements and, and uh, doing the work instead of just putting out a little statement, it greatly benefits those as well. But it's like a lot of times in the media, you know, it's like they almost, because these coaches, they make their money off of the black athlete. So it's easy. For, so I think it's, if they do more action instead of just putting out statements, it helps the cause even more. But I was totally. definitely, definitely aligned with um I, that's why I wanted to ask you that because I knew it was put you put you guys in a tough spot because you know that's how you make your money and that's how you you, you support yourself and the people around you you know getting back to sport but at the same time it's like the cause is more important than you know playing the sport at that time. Cause more important and then really our our gear shifted towards whether your coaches evaluating whether your players trying to play for opportunities our gears turned towards all right. They're going to be behind the eight ball in certain areas because coaches can get out and evaluate. Players can get out and play and do different things. Like, really, how can we offset some of the challenges that our ecosystem is going to face off of this? So mm-hmm. how can we be ready to stream so that coaches can't come out? We can make sure we're streaming it to the coaches. Um, you know, there's a, a, a group called Next Play 360. It's actually run by Scooter Henderson's family. Okay. The Hendersons are such a great family because before – Scooter was, was, you know, had even made the G League decision. 
they were using next play 360 to make sure players were able to still get that work in and that's all the way from the the scooters the sharif coopers the colin sextons you know the guys with nba you know in their future and in their present Mm -hmm. all the way down to, you know, kids are just trying to make their high school team and needed to work. So, I mean, they were just a huge outlet for the community. So, it's just, I just applaud the efforts of those to where as soon as the pandemic hit, their mind shifted towards what can we do to help, be it food drives, be it, you know, a safe place to, you know, still make sure you're following certain medical standards, but just being able to kind of help the ecosystem get through a tough time and respond to that tough time. Absolutely. A few more questions and we'll get ready to wrap it up. We spoke speaking earlier before we started this interview. You talk about a lot of the the moves. It's like you're so far ahead of like uh, like you're playing chess already. What's next for SUV TV? If you can share it, I would say continuing to stay true to our brand principles in a streaming industry that I think now is more focused on microwave, high volume. Everything's exponential to the point where how many you know paywall streams that you see out there how many you know high school grassroots streaming has bots now to where they're putting out fake high school streams with a fake link you got people clicking on it doing all, all the time yeah we got that in high school now they used to be something that used to be reserved for a, a super bowl an nba pros, playoff yeah. game a college game now we got that in high school grassroots mm-hmm. so in a space where you got you know streaming bots and a bunch of you know uh, a bunch of quick microwave tactics you got nil and different things that are good but a lot of times it's used as a carrot on a stick to, I think, take the focus away from more important principles at the high school grassroots way. How do we balance the growth and some of the, the new frontiers with not losing sight of some of the principles that I think are very key when you start talking high school grassroots and stuff that feeds up to the pro level? Um, so for us, it's continuing to broadcast quality. But aside from that, be there for the ecosystem beyond just our broadcast because they everything from mental health to career opportunities beyond playing um, and also being able to, you know, manage your circle tightly. There's a, a, a overwhelming a wealth of needs beyond just what we broadcast and the content we put out. So continuing to grow in that fashion. Absolutely. I went back and watched, as we wind this interview down, I went back and watched, like, this clip that we had um, from the first interview, and we were talking about um, NBA Mount Rushmore. And I got to go back and, and change one of my <laughs> – one of the players on my Mount Rushmore because at the time, I I, I said I said uh, Bill Russell, Magic Johnson, LeBron, and Allen Iverson. So going back, you know, watching uh, Last Dance with Michael Jordan, I got to go back and uh, I want to go back and say this on camera. I'm gonna go back and take uh, Magic off my list, and I'm gonna put Jordan on there because um, I I didn't really because I was born in '92. So I didn't really understand like the impact that yeah. Jordan had on the league. I know Magic came before Jordan, yeah. but the impact and you seen like how he just changed the culture. Jordan was just the, like the icon, the guy, even the shoes and everything. When you look at that in totality, I didn't understand that at the time. But when I watched the Last Dance, I was like, okay, Jordan. Was, I mean, I because everybody when you talk about the best player, it's always opinionated. Everybody, some people gonna say Jordan, LeBron, Kobe. Uh, Kareem, anybody, but when you look at the impact that Jordan had from that documentary, I don't think we've ever had a player in the league that's that was like a, a icon like Jordan. Yeah. So um, 
I want to know what you thought about me, you know, going back and, you know, making amends on that. No doubt, I had to... I, You know what I'm saying? I didn't hold it against you when you did it, <laughs> but, but I acknowledge my bias because, again, I told you how close Northwest Indiana was to Chicago. Up in that country, like, we, we didn't root for the Pacers. Like, you know, Reggie Cool and all, but, yeah, we're 30 minutes from Chicago, bro. So right. I was born in 83. You look at that stretch when I grew up in Indiana, like, you know, so all of those, the two, both Bulls three-peats. I'm in that market, right. you know, so how we look at Jordan and how, you know, to even now when I see Chicago, it's still like that's that's Jordan, even though he owns a totally different franchise and totally different city. So right. I think that documentary did a great job of walking, walking guys through that. And I think that's what's fun about sports, being able to look at different perspectives talk through different things and you know and just being able to compare you know different uh different viewpoints yeah so yeah and i think going back looking at it's like i don't have that emotional attachment because i wasn't really there to to actually like watch it on tv and actually see it it's, i feel like it's more like when you actually get a chance to like sit down and watch these guys even if you don't go to the games but you grow up watching these players and you kind of have like a you have an attachment to them because you see them the growth they have over all these years so for me I didn't really like have that emotional attachment to Jordan, but even when I talk to older people, when they just talk about Jordan, like man, nobody could see Mike on the court at all. Even like if you watch interviews now with former players, they're like, man, Jordan was just nobody could. It was like he was just so much far ahead of everybody else. And even Charles Barkley, I remember him on uh, I think he was on the Pivot podcast. And he was like, mm-hmm. that was one of the first times that he actually felt like there was a guy in the league that was better than him yeah. when he was talking about Michael Jordan. But for me, you know, I grew up in, you know, Kobe is my all-time favorite player. So, you know, I don't have him on my Mount Rushmore, but I do have LeBron on there. And I still say Iverson because, to me, Iverson was like the guy, like a, a cultural icon as far as like embracing hip-hop with the cornrows and the tattoos and everything like that. And, and, you know, eventually they banned, they stopped making, letting the guys wear like chains and all that stuff to the game. But to me... I still have Iverson on that regards because to me he was just like even though I don't think he was better than any of those guys and not Kobe either. I just feel like his the impact that he had overall as a culture on culture. Yep. That's why I had. You Iverson. see waves of his impact in today's game with certain things that the NBA lets them do. And I think the NBA has done as, as good a job as any league in terms of over time not being so antiquated that they can't kind of be true to the culture of the guys that drive the game. And I think you got to give credit to the you know the MBPA and the guys that kind of head that up because you know that segue doesn't happen without those guys being the type of guys that they are. So you know even if you give the Stearns and the Silvers credit, the MBPA does a great job. Absolutely. Uh, I know we got to get ready to wrap it up, but um, I'm gonna put you on the put you on the put you out there, put your feet to the fire real yeah. quick. I know you're an NBA guy. If you had to make a prediction, who would you say is in the finals and who would win it all? Finals, I'm going to go. Man, that's a good one. Finals out of the West. Man, that's a good one. Out of the West, I'm going to go. I, I think I'm going to go to state. Well, I am going. Assuming yeah, everybody stay healthy, I think we'll go to state bringing everybody back and then getting Wiseman back yeah. in the paint. And you still got Jordan Poole, even though he can jack up some shots at times. He can still hoop, though. But He can go, man. I'm going Golden State versus – and really, my, my wheels are turning on the east. Golden State, I just got them grayed in out of the west. Yeah. So, yeah, I got, I'm going Golden State. 
and I think I'm gonna go. Man, it, it was funny because before the you know when Yudoka not coaching now, because I, I they, like had, made, they made some good moves. Yeah, they made some good moves. Um, it's between Celtics and Bucks. I think I'm gonna go Celtics in the finals. Even Again? with even with the coaching change, I think I'm gonna go Celtics. And some of this is, I believe, Tatum learned a lot from last year in addition to being a good player. And Jalen Brown had a great finals yeah. last year. And, and he's a player. Some players um, play better with a, with a little chip. And I think, he, I think there's a chip that he's going to use um, going into this year. So I, yeah. I, like the, I like the Celtics. I'm, Not to mention Malcolm Brogdon, another Atlanta area guy who I think is going to be, you know, you talk point guard, that it's going to be a, a nice little pickup. point guard addition. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's going to be – Golden State, bringing everybody back. You get Wiseman back. I think that's going to help them out tremendously. And then um, out the East, like I said, it, it, the East is tough. I, I'll probably say Milwaukee again. I think I think them keeping their, their main core together. It's just something. And Middleton will be back Middleton healthy. Middleton will be back healthy. Yeah. I, I like them over Brooklyn, over Boston. Brooklyn, they got talent, but it just – I feel like they just got too much. Yes, it's, the the yeah, chemistry. Tough, yeah, yeah so, so I'm, I'm going to say uh, Golden State and uh, Milwaukee. I think Golden State going to repeat, though. So everybody so healthy. Because Clay wasn't even 100%. He wasn't. He, But that's the thing. Clay at 80 is still pretty good. But yeah, yeah like 100% Clay. And you still got to respect him as a shooter, regardless. You have to. Uh, anytime. You so have I, to. Not to mention how he defends. Yep. And, you know, so yeah. Clay, yeah, Clay can go, man. Yeah, so I, I got Golden State and Milwaukee, and then I got Golden State holding, winning it all again. Um, what advice would you give for someone pursuing their dreams? You know, they may not want to be um, – they might not want to have their own um, company, production company, or whatever it is. Like, they may have different uh, a different idea of, of what they want to do in life. Like, what advice would you have for someone that wants to pursue their dream? Uh, I would say refuse to be denied – and be willing to adapt. Mm-hmm. That covers everything. Because the willingness to adapt is going to make it to where, like I said, sometimes you got to stick to your guns and just know what you know. Um, but that don't mean you're reckless and you're not always studying to get better, studying what works best, doing mm-hmm. your homework, challenging yourself. So that's part of that being willing to adapt. If you're not even doing that, you're not going to be willing to adapt because you don't even know what to adapt to because you're right. not doing homework. But aside from that, even you know, there are some that do some that do homework. They're online. They're they're doing things. They're attending stuff, but they're not really willing to go after it. Mm-hmm. Their refusal to be denied isn't there. So I right. think if you can do those two things, is that an exhaustive list? No, but that covers everything that you need to be able to do. Because when you do it, there's gonna be people that's gonna tell you you can't do it. It's gonna be people that say, but they already doing this. It's gonna be people that. If it doesn't go as well as you want to, to want to do right out of the gate, they're looking at you sideways and trying to deter you. So you just gotta have a refusal to be denied, and you gotta always be sharp and be better at your craft. So always be willing to adapt. All the great companies you're doing. And Netflix went to a subscription model to where they're gonna be going to an advertising revenue-based option sooner mm-hmm. or later. You know, Disney has adjusted things. So all of the great companies know how to adapt. Absolutely. Then my final two questions. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, give your younger self some advice, what would you tell yourself, the younger Marcus? I would say, um, I would definitely say to myself when I was at Fuse Advertising, I would say, um, 
appreciate what's going on right now, you really don't realize how good you have it. Because at that time, even though I was getting good work and doing different things, it was still just, I think there was a little bit of entitlement there. You know, I went to a very great school, and even though they were giving me a great opportunity, it was just still a little bit of, you know, I just got to be entitled to a little something different. Mm -hmm. When having started the company for myself, man, the best thing you can get from a great company and a great leader is meaningful work. Because what that says is they trust you with the ball in your hands. A ball that they put blood, sweat, and tears into. If they, if they put that ball in your hands, that in and of itself is an accomplishment. So I would mm-hmm. tell my younger self to appreciate that. But but hindsight is twenty twenty. You just got to be able to make sure you're looking back. Because nobody is perfect. Even That's if fat. I would have done that differently, I would still look back on, okay, I could have done these five or six things differently. So just make sure you're taking that look back. Absolutely. And then my last and final question. This is the Cross the Line Podcast Self-Investment Tour. So I like to ask everybody at the end, what does self-investment mean to you? To me, self-investment means making sure you put everything that you possibly can into yourself to get the return that you're looking for. Um, Everybody has goals and what they want to do. Not too many people are going to do what I saw you do in terms of, hey, man, this is what I want to do. I want to create this podcast. I want to interview business owners. I want to go to multiple cities. Everything you told me you wanted to do, you did. You sacrificed. Mm-hmm. You made it happen. Uh, you tried this. You saw if that worked. You, 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 know, you took notes along the way. You improved it along the way. So when I look at self-investment, it's not just saying, hey, I want to get this return. This is what I want to build. It's exhausting yourself, making sure you're putting everything that's possible into it to make that come to fruition. Absolutely. I appreciate that, Marcus. Um, before we get out of here, I want to thank you, man. I also got you a gift. I know we got to wrap it up. Um, I got you a gift real quick, man. Um, I've been meaning to get this to you for a while, um, but this is a copy of my book. I already signed yes, it for you. I was just about to say, yes, you got to get your opinion. You yeah, sign I already it signed it for yes, you, man. Sir. But I appreciate you for, you know, like I said, you always took me under your wing. You embraced me, um, took me around with you, man. Like, the first time I ever went to Florida, it was with you guys when we did the, uh, we were in Niceville, Florida. It was about three, four years yep. ago. EC16. Yep. yep. And I was there, and... Um, I appreciate you for that, man, because it gave me a first, my first. I always said I wanted to go to Florida, and then that was the first time I, I ever went to Florida. So I appreciate you for that. But um, you've always been so supportive of me ever since we met. And uh, it's crazy to believe it's been seven years already. That's why yeah. I'm like, man, I was I was fresh out of college still. I mean, I'm still learning now, but, you know, for that, that brotherhood and that friendship to continue this long, man, I really do appreciate you. Likewise, bro, I appreciate you. And, and, and another advice I would give young young people and entrepreneurs, man, Keep good energy, good vibe people around you. You know, Absolutely. sometimes there'll be times where obviously you're a good business mind, you're an entrepreneur, you're doing great things. But there are times where people can check those boxes and not necessarily be good people. Mm-hmm. Good energy people, man, ho- hold on to them, man. Hold yeah. on to them, support them. Absolutely. Relationships are, will take you a long way, way, way further than money will. Yep. But before we get out of here, Marcus, can you tell everyone how to find you on your business on social media? Yep, so uh, we're on Twitter at SUVTV, uh, on Instagram at SUV.TV. Absolutely. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode, Take some, took, some, took a lot of these things away and, and used it to fulfill your dreams. So until next time, this is Across the Line Podcast, Self-Investment Tour. Keep chasing your dreams. Thank you for listening.